You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. So, Parshat Vayakel, we are going to dedicate, this may be the last year we have in person for a while. We're going to dedicate this year to a speedy and healthy recovery to Eliezer Yitzchak ben Shifra, who's the father of uh, Jonah and one of our alumni, Liav. And uh, and Bezrat Hashem and others and Bezrat Hashem he should uh, he should have a full recovery soon. He's I, I understand he's improving. We're greedy. We want him to be fully healthy. And of course to all the other uh, Corona patients, those who know, those who don't know. Um, this is uh, this is the stuff you 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 expected to read about in the Zohar, you know, like Atchalta Tekuula. The nations of the world will experience a magefa, a terrible plague. And even in Eretz Yisrael, and the Jews will be forced to leave and separate from each other, right? And here we are, we're experiencing it. It's, uh, it's like if you ever experienced an event in your life where you felt that Hashem was stirring the pot, I would imagine for you guys this would be it. What do you do with this? If you think about it, what are what are our values, Right? That we should be together. This virus is forcing people to be apart. That we should be in Eretz Israel. This virus is forcing people to leave Israel. And the list goes on. So it must be that we're meant to learn something. Now, the Gemara says, Yisurin over in Adam, It's a Gemara in Brachos, right? The Talmud says that when a person goes through travail, he has to leaf through his actions like a book. He has to consider there's some message. Now, that doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to get the answer. Nobody should misinterpret what we're going to share here to presume that I know what HaKadosh Baruch was planning. But to go through the process, that's healthy. And missing the opportunity to go through a process is a lost opportunity. So that question is just, it's not even hanging in the background. It's mamash the elephant in the room. What is going on? find it fascinating that this is occurring on Parsha Vayakel. Right? This is the Parsha of Vayakel Pekude. Okay? When the Moshe Rabbeinu gathers everybody together, specifically the Shabbat where everybody's gathered together, the Jews are being forced apart. That's crazy. And Pekude, which is where we're counted, where everyone makes a difference. If you could think of an event where what one individual does makes a difference, I challenge you to come up with one more than this. If one person walks out of his bidud, out of his quarantine, and gets one other person ill, that can cause millions, millions of people to be impacted. Right? And I'm sure you've read some of these articles that are floating around the web. Right? The goal right now is no longer to stop the virus. The goal is to contain the virus to such a degree to slow down the curve. So that as people, chas v'shalom, get sick, the health system of whatever country they're in can handle it. Right? There comes a point, you know, there are, I don't know, I read an article in the United Kingdom. There are 5,000 units in the entire country in the ICU. If you take all, ICU is the intensive care unit. person either is right before or right after an operation, and he's seriously in critical, critical state, like it's dangerous, he has a, a full-time sort of doctor, nurse team, whatever, that are with him. person has open-heart surgery and you sew him up, he's in the ICU. You know that'll happen. I had a very severe car accident many years ago. Only much later did I find out that they weren't sure I was going to make it through the night. They formed an emergency, whatever, on me. 
And then I was in ICU for a couple of days. So if a person can't be in ICU, a significant portion of the time that's basically a death sentence. There are 5,000 ICU beds in the entire United Kingdom. They're estimating if they don't get this under control in the next three weeks, they're going to end up with as many as 100,000 patients who need ICU. So what are you going to do with those 95,000 people? That's what we're talking about. So the goal is just to contain it so that the curve doesn't grow. In Italy, for example, where they started much, much later, just yesterday I heard on the news this morning, 368 people died. Now I grant you most of them are over the age of 60 or 70 and they have specific uh, physical ailments that made it exacerbated. The issue is not whether I'm nervous I'm going to get sick. The person's reasonably healthy, the likelihood is he won't. But that, but that we could be part of giving it to someone else. That's a, so what is going on? What is this? Why is the world experiencing this? What, what, what logic can we find in the message? So this is Parsha Vayakel. Okay? And uh, Parsha starts, Vayakel Moshe, kol adat b'nei Yisrael. Now let's think about this. Moshe gathers the entire Jewish people, right? Rashi points out, Mepharshim points out, that, that um, uh, sorry, yes, the Ramban, Yichlo kol adat b'nei Yisrael ha'anashim v'hanashim ki kulam itnadvu melechta mishkan. Moshe doesn't just gather together a small cohort, most of the halachot, most of the mitzvot, uh, the laws that were given over to the Jewish people, Moshe doesn't go up on a mountain and yell them out and somehow miraculously they get heard by hundreds of thousands of people. Moshe shared it with a few people. He shared it with Aaron. Then he shared it with his sons, Nadav and Naviyu. Then the Sanhedrin came. Right? There was a limited group that he would study it with. And then they, those, the judges, etc., would pass it on to the Jewish people. But there are certain rare moments where somehow Moshe gathers together the entire Jewish people. He either had a booming voice or a sent before a miracle or both. And the entire Jewish people hears it. So why does Moshe feel need to gather the entire Jewish people? By the way, it's interesting. What would I have expected to find here? I would have expected to find, as I find in other instances, by the Ber Hashem Moshe, Hashem speeks to Moshe saying, Hakel et neso, gather together the Jewish people. That's not what it says here. It says, Vayakel Moshe. Moshe takes this upon himself. Now, why does Moshe feel a need to gather the Jewish people? So Rashi gives us an idea. He alludes to this. When he notes the calendar day of this event, what is the Hebrew date of this day, Vayakel Moshe? And what Hebrew date does Moshe gather everybody together? Everybody know? Pardon? Nope. Nope. Anybody know? Okay. This is telling me nobody has studied Rashi this week. This is the first Rashi. Okay. It's the day after Yom Kippur. Now that's interesting. Why does Moshe have to tell me it's the day after Yom Kippur? What's that about? So let's think a little here. What happened if I am now Moshe and the Jewish people and it's the 11th of Tishrei, it's the day after Yom Kippur. What happened yesterday? Anybody know? Exactly. Moshe comes down from Sinai with the second set of luchot, the second set of tablets. Just so everybody's on the same page chronologically. On the 6th or 7th of Sivan, the month of Sivan, what happens? What do we call that event? I'll give you a hint, Shavuot. Matan Torah. 
right? We sort of uh, ascribe that to be the day we received the Torah. It's not actually true. It's the day we started receiving the Torah. Even that's not true, because we received certain mitzvot earlier at a place called Marah. Right? There were other mitzvot. We received some mitzvot in Egypt, uh, the mitzvot of the new moon. So what happens on the 6th, 7th day of Sivan? That's the, the revelation at Sinai. That's where the Jewish people, en masse, somehow experience God on a personal level. They don't believe in God, they now know Hashem exists, because Hashem talks to them. You know my opinion, and you can't really prove that God exists, but God could prove that God exists. And that's apparently what happened. That's one way of looking at it. Okay, and this is great. Moshe goes up on the mountain, the Jewish people are a little nervous about that, they want to stand afar. Moshe's up there for 40 days, he's writing, he's learning, he has the most unbelievable base medrash experience, he has the best chavrusa you could ask for, God, right? Moshe doesn't have a God wall. Moshe has a God smicha. It's unbelievable, right? Forty days later, what happens? Moshe's ready to come down. Only it turns out it's a mess. What happens on the 40th day? Everybody knows? right? Sin of the golden calf. This is a mess. What is the date on the day of the sin, the debacle of the golden calf? Everybody know? 17th day of Tammuz, right? They go up. The first day is the 7th of Sivan. And this is 40 days later, the 17th of Tammuz. Now we know that 17th of Tammuz is the day when the Romans broke through the walls, the Babylonians broke through the walls. This is the day of brokenness. And so what happens on that day? Moshe comes down. The Jewish people are engaged in an orgy of idolatry. And Moshe breaks the Luchot. That is the day of brokenness. Okay. So now it's a disaster. Hashem says, I'm going to destroy the Jewish people. Moshe argues with God. How many days does it take Moshe to argue with God? He has a few days. You know, he's got to clean things up. Kill a few thousand people, get the Levites on board, crush the golden calf, put aside the broken pieces of the Luchot in its own ark, whatever he does there. A couple days later, he goes back up. What date does he go back up again to gain forgiveness? Anybody know? 20th day of Tammuz. On the third day. There were three days of preparation for receiving the Torah, there are three days of preparation for getting forgiveness. Goes up on the 20th day of Thomas, he's up there for 40 days. So what day does he come down? Pardon? Rosh Chodesh Elul, the new month of Elul. That's why the new month of Elul, Rosh Chodesh Elul always starts the intense, the more intense period of forgiveness, introspection, juva, right? Leading up to Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. But the problem is on Rosh Chodesh, now we've gotten forgiveness, but we're back to where we started. We still got no lucho, we got no tablets, and we got no Torah. We just remember hearing something some 80 days ago. So Moshe goes up again, only this time it's different. This time he has to write them or engrave them, whatever else is going on. Comes down 40 days later, and that is Yom Kippur. Now this is amazing. I mean, think about this process. Moshe must be exhausted. He's had three 40-day trips. If you buy into the Medrash and the Kabbalah, he doesn't eat for 40 days at a time. I mean, talk about a guy who must have lost weight. He, for 40 days he fasts, then he comes down. Then 40 days he fasts, then he comes down. Then he does it again, then he comes down. It's exhausting. You would think this would be the day Moshe slept late. But no. Moshe wakes them up and gathers them all together. What's so important? What's so important? No, what does Moshe have to do? What do we start now? We start to what? We start to build a Mishkan. We're given a mitzvah to build a tabernacle. Now there's a big debate as to why we're given this mitzvah. Let's work with Rashi. Super commentary on the Torah. Rashi's the one who says it's the day after Yom Kippur. So let's look at his perspective. Why are we given a mitzvah now 
to build a tabernacle, to build a mishkan, even the portions that appear before Chet Egel, before the sin of the golden calf, Truma and Tetzaveh, are really something that occurs afterwards, according to Rashi. We won't get into that discussion. Why are we now given this mitzvah? This is the consequence of Chet Egel. The consequence of Chet Egel is you have to build a mishkan. Now that raises all sorts of questions, I will grant you, because if, if the only reason you're building a tabernacle is because of the sin of the golden calf, that means that in an ideal world, we wouldn't have had a mishkan, we wouldn't have had a tabernacle. Could that mean that in an ideal world you don't need a temple, a base amikdash? There are some who suggest that, makes no sense to me. Right? In Az Yashir, which clearly occurs, the song of the sea clearly occurs before the sin of the golden calf, Mikdash Hashem Koronu Yadecha, the temple of God are prepared by your hands, right? So clearly there's always going to be a base of English. So a simple way of understanding is we would have had a temple, we would have had a Beit HaMikdash in Israel, but we wouldn't have needed a Mishkan in the desert. And that actually makes a lot of sense. This supports the opinion that says that the reason that we need a tabernacle is because we're now going to be 40 years in the desert, which supports the opinion that says that part of the reason we were punished for 40 years in the desert was the sin of the golden calf, along with the sin of the spies. And that makes sense. All of a sudden now, I'm not getting to Israel in a hurry, so I'm going to need something for the next 40 years, and that's a mishkan. Okay, so Moshe gathers them together. Has to happen right away. Okay, Jesus, we have to do mitzvot in a hurry. But this is interesting. If this was so, what would I expect Moshe to say? There's a mitzvah to build a, a mishkan. Let's get started. That's how Moshe says. Anybody know what Moshe says now? Anybody? Three guys have come over to me with a question. What do I think is a good project to do? As some of you are leaving, you know, Nebuch, Corona Land, right? How about Shnai Mikra? Parsha Shavua. That's, that's a good one. Yeah, right? I'm just saying, you know. It's only Tuesday, you can still do it, right? This is crazy. This is what Moshe says. and there's this brief interview. By the way, it includes the pasuk that is a well-known verse: "Lo tevaru esh b'chol moshvot echem b'yom haShabbat." You shall not kindle a fire in all of your places on Shabbat. Right? What does this have to do with with the price of tea in China? Probably a bad example now, but whatever. Why? Why are we? What does Shabbos have to do with chet egel? So I want to suggest to you an idea. And. Uh, I'm going to speak for another 10 minutes. Then uh, one of the boys is leaving. You might need a little help taking luggage. So, And anybody wants to stay a little longer in q and I'm happy to do that. I remember... Can't resist. I remember um, during the second intifada... Uh, no, the first intifada. This is 1988. Um, and things went to pot. Um, Arabs all over the country started rioting, Molotov cocktails, shooting, gunfire, was terrible. And I was on my first middle, it was my first reserve duty. And we were in a nasty piece of real estate called Jabalia. Jabalia is ostensibly a refugee camp. At the time, there were about 120,000 people there in a very tight space. And uh, it was really a horrible, horrible middle. 
And I remember every day you didn't know what was waiting for you around the corner, riots and shootings and, and Molotov cars. It was just terrible. And you were as stressed about not having to make a mistake and, and injure a civilian and go to court as you were about, God forbid, getting injured. And I remember one day we had finished our patrol. We were on a 12-man patrol, two vehicles, which was unheard of in Israel. We used to do that sort of thing in Lebanon. In Aza, I used to go in in a jeep with two guys. All of a sudden, you were with 12 men, two vehicles, and tents. And we finished a, a, an eight-hour shift. And I was like so ready to get back to base, you know, grab some food, whatever. And we get this urgent call over the radio that there's a unit, there's a riot building. I can hear the voice of this uh, um, um, uh, young lieutenant who was very stressed, uh, which didn't seem to me to be like him. Um, he was older than me. And... Um, and, and, and it came over the frequency, and so everybody turned around. Now, he was describing, he starts to, so the, so the radio room says to him, exactly where are you? So he explains where he is, he's on the edge of a square, there's a, there's a, a riot building. And um, it was really strange to me, because I had just been in that square, maybe five, ten minutes earlier, and there was nothing going on. And I didn't even see this unit, I guess they must have come from another, right, from a different company. And they put it on the battalion frequency, is anybody in the area? So we were not that far away. So he said, okay. So we turned around and we started heading full gear and everybody starts putting their gear back on, whatever. And another unit says they're coming and another unit says they're coming. Because this is serious. Like there's a unit, they're stuck, they're throwing things at them, they don't... So the, the standard operating procedure when you had a riot, we weren't really prepared for these types of things, civilians, is you called all the vehicles you could and all the vehicles would, would navigate and figure out which direction you should come from. The idea was to leave the rioters sort of the largest avenue of escape. And if they would see all these vehicles coming, you know, you shoot a few tear gas grenades, whatever, which is not long-term harmless. It just causes you to tear. And they would run away and that'd be it. So it happened to be that I was closest. So I sort of took over on the radio, started announcing which direction I'm coming from. And I told the second unit, you come from that way. This is like standard procedure. And we get there and we get out. And, you know, I have two guys on the vehicle and you guys come with me. And we run around and we get to the square. And there's nobody there. Nobody there, no Arabs. A couple of guys are walking by some Arabs, they look at us like, what's going on? All these men running with riot gear, and they're looking, but there's nobody there. So quickly, you know, we get on the radio, we say, where are you? Tells us where he is. You're not there, I'm here. And this starts. It took us half an hour to find him. It turned out that he had made a wrong turn, he was in the wrong place. He had ventured into an area much deeper in Jabalia, closer to Hussan, and, and uh, uh, whatever, it doesn't matter. And, 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 and we weren't even supposed to be there. Our job was to protect the road. So that's why he started a riot. It took a half an hour to find him. By the time we found him, the battalion commander was there, the deputy battalion commander. There must have been like 15 different vehicles. It was a huge to-do. In fact, by the time we actually got to the place where we figured out he was, and all these vehicles sort of converged, the rioters, there were only about 50 or 60 of them, took one look, and they just turned tail and ran. Right? And as this all starts to calm down, I see the battalion commander. The battalion commander, Rami Lanier, was the son of Dan Lanier. Dan Lanier... It's one of probably three individuals who literally saved the state of Israel in the Yom Kippur War. He had a he took an entire brigade in a in a whatever an encircling movement and, and basically stopped the entire Iraqi army. He was a legend, and his son was a totach. He was really a solid battalion commander, unbelievable. And I see that this guy, this man, this young platoon commander, is freaked out. First of all, he's in shock because he was with a jeep and not with two patrols, and he almost got himself killed. And second of all, he you know caused the whole battalion to waste half an hour, so he was a little freaked out. So the battalion commander kind of puts his arm, and as he walks him away, I guess to give him a serious dressing down, he says to him, I'll never forget this line, he says to him, We needed an exercise, thanks for finding a creative way to give us one. Right? 
and guys who heard it laughed, and that was the end of it. I remember thinking, like, that to me is leadership. Like, he recognized he's going to give this guy, but he's got to... That's Moshe Rabbeinu here. Moshe Rabbeinu understands that even though technically Hashem has forgiven the Jewish people, the Jewish people need to forgive themselves. You know what happens the day after Yom Kippur? When all this is finally over, now it's time to take a pause. You got to think. Don't go right into building the Mishkan. Just take a moment. What is Shabbat? Shabbat is all about taking a pause. It's about slowing down. It's about sequestering yourself. It's about putting your phone in the drawer and leaving things aside and being just with the family at home around the table and having a chance to really think about the things that affect us in life. What have we been doing all week and where are we running? And I want you to know, one of the first things that goes, a lot of you guys, you know, you're going to head back to college and I hope as Ratashem we have many discussions before that happens. But for all we know, this could be my last chance to talk to some of you in person. You know the first thing that goes in shot and, and when you get to college? I don't think the average guy walks into college, takes his keep off and starts eating cheeseburgers. The first thing that goes is Shabbat. Because you got a big test and you got to study, but you're not going to take notes. And whether you could get away with that halakhali is a separate issue. I'm not going to go there right now. But whether or not technically you're violating Shabbat, you're definitely losing Shabbat. Do you lose that points? I think maybe. That's why it says, You know, fire is all about what we do. It's, it's about producing. It's about creating. Many cultures, there was a study in Hopkins, Johns Hopkins, many years ago. I think it was like 120 different cultural uh, identities. And, and they did a study to discover how many common legends do they have. And they found some 30 customs and legends that were common to almost all of these cultures. For example, the flood story or Gilgamesh. Many cultures have this at their root, which kind of raises an interesting question. Either that means that we all came from a source, or it means that it really happened. And one of the things that many cultures share is that at the beginning, man created fire. The Mender says that Hashem gave Adam the gift of fire when he left Gan Eden. Because this would be the essence of his being able to have light and create and produce in the world. And we start Shabbat with fire and we end Shabbat with fire. And the only difference between the fire before Shabbat and the fire after Shabbat is that before Shabbat we light two separate candles. And at the end of Shabbat, the fire is supposed to be one wick. Because that's what Shabbat's supposed to do. It's supposed to bring us together. That's what this pause is supposed to do. And that's what the world is experiencing. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand this. What do I know what Hashem wants? What do I know what Hashem is planning? But if we had to think about it, take a pause and think about what, what could the message be, it's almost like Hashem is telling the world, listen, you don't know how to be together? I'm going to give you some time apart to think about it. It's like when the kids are little and my wife used to give them a time out to think about it before they came back to the table. We're going we're gonna to experience a pause. You know, you know what a pause is? Go into two weeks in quarantine. You'll find out what a pause is. You know? Sit in an airplane and separate yourself. Make sure there's a seat in between you because you've got to be in pause. And you can't be ten in a room. And so on and so forth. So I think that's probably the deep message here and something to think about. The challenge will be what we choose to do with this pause. Do we become better for it? Or do we miss this opportunity? Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.